Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here at Acton University, which is a, a conference of academics on the intersection of religious principles, liberty, and economics. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to get a whole group of great people together and uh, really pleased to have Jay Richards with us, Dr. Dr. Jay Richards, who is an assistant research professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., still, still functions as senior fellow of the Discovery Institute, executive editor of The Stream. I'll let you say a little bit more about what that is sure. in, in just a moment. But the reason I am so delighted to have Jay on with us today is to talk about his latest book, which is incredibly provocative and very timely. Uh, the book is entitled The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. So, Jay, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, great to and, be with you, Scott. And, thanks. And for talking about this really important subject. Sure. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's fair to say that uh, our Christian community is... is is about to be caught off guard mm-hmm. yes. uh, by the, these, these smart machines. So let me, let me cut right to the chase yeah. here at the very beginning. Are smart machines and artificial intelligence going to take all our jobs? No, they're not going to take all our jobs. That's the, so if everybody, if listeners forget everything else, that's, that's my conclusion. They're not going to take all our jobs, and they're, more importantly, they're not going to replace us. Uh, it doesn't mean they're not going to do a lot of the jobs that we think only humans can do or that people are doing right now. That's a different question. But this idea that they're going to wipe out, say, half of all the jobs and leave us with nothing to do, I think it's just a myth. Okay. But in your book, you do suggest that there's pretty significant economic disruption that's coming yes. because of these smart machines. That's so right. What, uh, and it, and, and it's, it's here and yeah. it's going to get worse. That's right. So what kinds of jobs are going to be lost? What, what kinds of jobs should we be worried about losing? Well, the, when people first think about this, they imagine that it's manual labor jobs. That's actually a bit of a myth. And if you think about it, the things we can make computers to do, it's a lot of mental work, right? We got a computer to beat the, the, the world champion right. at chess in 1995. We can't make a robot that can do, say, house cleaning or you know, room sweeping in, uh, in hotels. And so there's actually complex bodily movements, skilled trades that are gonna be much harder to automate. Highly repetitive work, whether it's in a factory or in an office, in other words, things that can be easily automated that are sort of rule-based and repetitive. The way I put it is anything that can be automated probably will be automated sometime in the next 20 or 25 years. But it's not as simple as, well, it's going to wipe out all the blue-collar jobs and leave the white-collar. No, it's going, to, it's going to wipe out different ones based essentially on whether it makes sense to automate them. Okay, so give me a couple of concrete examples yeah. of jobs that have been lost, say, Absolutely. in the last five years. Well, yeah, and in fact, what's funny, like you think of the repetitive factory jobs on an assembly line. So this was this is not an internal verity. This type of working actually was invented by Henry Ford. Factories are a couple mm-hmm. of centuries old. This idea where every human person, right, does just one thing over and over every day. Those jobs have been disappearing, but they've been disappearing slowly since about 1980. Part of that is because they get moved overseas, but most of it is actually because, if not total automation, partial automation in which you mm-hmm. need fewer people to actually do more work. So that's why our manufacturing sector is more productive per capita 
than it's ever been in history, but there are fewer people actually doing it. So it's those types of factory jobs uh, that are going to disappear. Clerical work that it requires a lot of kind of data crunching that's highly repetitive. Um, I mean, think about uh, telephone operators is a perfect mm-hmm. example of this, right? The, the, these jobs just simply don't exist. There's a lot of financial services jobs that are mostly kind of simple analysis uh, that have, have already disappeared and will so, continue to disappear. And Amazon warehouses. Amazon warehouses, which is an things. example I give, though those have been, if you go to an Amazon fulfillment center, it is a wonder of automation. It's almost entirely automated. The forklifts run themselves. But right at the end, uh, there are human beings that pick up the product and put it in boxes. Because that's the one thing we haven't mm-hmm. made robots that are able to do is to tell the difference between, well, this is toilet paper, this is fragile glass, right? This is a book. Humans, a four-year-old is really good at doing mm-hmm. that. We don't have robots yet that can do that. So I suspect that'll be the kind of last thing that gets automated. Okay. So what, what Henry Ford lamented years ago, that uh, all I want is a pair of hands, but I, but I get a whole person <laughs> yeah. to go with it. That, that's those kinds of jobs are are the ones that are in danger. Well, they are. If all you're doing is something really simple and repetitive with your hands, mm-hmm. if you're doing something complex with your hands or with your body, yeah. that's going to be different. resistant to automation. That really is different, and it's it's known in the field as Morvac's paradox from Hans Morvac, who just said. Well, it's just hard to replicate the computational resources, the robotics required to do what any four-year-old knows how to do. That's actually a really tough problem. So, you know, the title of your book is The, is the Human Advantage. Mm. So how would you summarize what, what constitutes the, the human advantage <laughs> over robotics, artificial yeah. intelligence, things like that? Well, it's, it's a long answer, but the simple answer is everything that, uh, about us that's not machine-like. So if we're just machines, if you think we're just machines made of meat, you know, this kind of famous Marvin Minsky quote, then mm-hmm. you should probably be worried because if we're just, you know, been produced by these blind forces of nature and we can do these things, maybe we'll re- produce machines that can surpass us. If we're not machines, though, if we're makers of machines, but we're more than that, then by definition, machines can't literally replace us. So there's going to be, you can think of it as a residual, or I just I talk about it as our comparative advantage. It's the things that we can do uniquely. Those are the things that we're going to need to focus on. So that the things that can be automated, we let them be automated. And in fact, it, it ultimately, though it disrupts us, frees us up to do things that are more uniquely human. Okay, and in the past... All of the economic disruptions have been sh- short-term, mm-hmm. painful. Yeah. But in the long run, I-, I don't see anybody. I don't see anybody who misses the horse and buggy industry. <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's the lesson actually. That if technology created permanent technological unemployment, human history would be this long, depressing story of increasing unemployment. That's not the case, Definitely. right? It's a famous uh, economists talk about the lump of labor fallacy, as if there's just this fixed amount of work to be done, and if a machine does it, then there's nothing else to do. That's not what happens. We develop new ways of getting more output with less input. It brings the prices of things like food down. And then, it, first of all, we have more disposable income, and it frees us up to do different things. It's switching to the different things that I argue is the main cost of this, because the disruption, you know, it's one thing to say, well, there's going to be a great job five years from now, but if you need to pay your mortgage this month, that's called comfort. And so it's really that uh, temporary but severe disruption that we need to focus on, and not this idea that we're all going to be put out of work permanently. Well, and I think we do need to resist the, the Keynesian idea <laughs> that in the long run we're all dead. No, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the long run does matter. It does matter, absolutely. Yeah. And the reality is, so the question is really, okay, if we understand that overall, 
you know, five or 10 years out, there'll be amazing new things to do. What do we do kind of in the short run for people? What, what should individuals that are just starting college or high school or work do? Okay, so let's, let, let's cut right to that okay. point. So let's say that you are, you've got a group of high school students mm-hmm. that you are advising about career paths and education. Yep. In light of the phenomena that you're describing in your book, how would you be advising that group of high school and college students? And in fact, I do this a lot. The first thing I do is tell them that they shouldn't expect that the next, let's say you're about to go to college, that they're gonna get four years of education and then they're done. That's just not how it's gonna work. If you think of the way in which industry and types of work change over time, they need to be prepared for lifelong learning. So it's sort of the beginning. Uh, It's a time when they can set aside full time to study and to learn, but they should expect that they're always going to be doing that. The days are over for most people in which they can go to trade school or college for two or four years, go get a job and then work at the same firm doing the same thing for 40 years. That's just not likely to happen. And I know it's true in California, but in Washington, D.C., 20 to 30-somethings, most of them have three business cards. Most of them have a job that pays the bills, uh, a side gig that they really like, and then the kind of flyer that they're hoping will pan out at some point. And I think that's more the the nature of the future. All right. So um, you point out a a number of things in the book that – that you that you believe hold people back yes. from moving forward. One of these is what you call the fatalist myth. Yes. What exactly is that, and how does how does that function? The fatalist myth is just this terrible belief that a lot of people have that either their genes or their circumstances or society uh, has fixed their future for them so that there's really nothing they can do. That's really who the book is written for. I wrote the book as an optimistic book to say, look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time talking about disruption and all these things. I'm going to say, I'm just going to treat it as a fact mm-hmm. and say, what should you do to adapt yourself to be able to flourish in a new economy? Um, and the fatalist myth is the thing that tempts you not to do anything to say, well, you know, I, I don't have any technical skills. What can I do? I'm a long haul trucker. Um, I, I always try to remind people, especially native born Americans like myself, that there are millions of people that will <laughs> risk their lives to come here. They often don't know the language, right? Uh, they obviously see opportunities. And so sort of think about the opportunities that they see and try to get it into your own head. Because it's tempting, you know, if you're in a if you're in a dead-end job or you're in an industry that seems to be waning, to think that there's nothing you can do. The reality is compared to our ancestors 200 years ago, most of whom were farming, they actually didn't have a plan B. But most of us that are adults, especially if you're college educated, the truth of the matter is there's hundreds of things you could do. Uh, and it's just kind of self-indulgent to say, well, there's just really nothing I can do. So should, should high school and college students be seeking something different out of a college education than we've traditionally sought in the past? Well, I think a college education, and I'm saying this as a college professor, has for, for centuries, it's bundled several goods together. So it's a kind of credential, it's a signal, it provides networking opportunities, it delivers information. Ideally, it's soul building. That was the goal of liberal arts, right? Was to sort mm-hmm. of expand the soul. All those things are goods. I don't know that a college or university has to always do all of those things, and it may be that some of those things get unbundled. That's why I think, for instance, it's good advice to tell some people, look, go to trade school. Everybody doesn't have to go to a liberal arts college. On the other hand, 
if you can, um, I tell my children this, and so I would tell anyone else, uh, try to do all of it. Try to d develop a skill, do a degree or maybe a minor in, you know, in coding or in graphic design or whatever, and also get a liberal arts degree because in some ways that makes you the most adaptable. You actually don't want to over-specialize. Some people think, okay, I'll find the right. narrowest sort of technical specialty. That's all I'll do. Uh, cybersecurity right now, for instance, is actually a great thing to do right now, but it's highly specialized. Uh, and it may be that five years from now that didn't make sense. And so really, I think a genuine liberal arts education, not what passes for that in a lot of secular schools, yeah. is I think still a very valuable asset, but, especially because it yeah. focuses on what it means to be human. So, so you learn things like critical thinking. Absolutely. Problem solving. Yes. How and, to read, how to read a text. Right. And how to write. <laughs> how to write a coherent and, sentence. And some minimal character development. Absolutely, which I think is actually the key thing. Now, you, you make the, this is really a, a provocative statement that uh, in the United States, mm -hmm. minimal virtues and basic health care are all that somebody needs to avoid poverty. That's right. And, and this is, in fact, here at Acton University, Jonah Goldberg mentioned this last night. And I think it did come from the Brookings Institution. It's this pathway to success. So basically, this is just a statistical matter. If you graduate from high school, avoid felonies, go to college or trade school, um, wait until you're married to have kids, right? And then I would say stay married. You're just almost certainly not going to be below the poverty line in the United States. That's not true everywhere. And so that's what I would call kind of minimal virtue, right? Don't commit a felony. That's not, shouldn't be that high. <laughs> the bar is not that high. <laughs> that's not that high. And so we need to remind ourselves of that before we say, okay, in addition to that, what do we need to do in the new economy? That pathway to success means, well, you're not going to be impoverished, but you might not flourish necessarily unless you do more than that. Now, you said that's not that that may not be true in some other parts of the world. Absolutely. In fact, it's not true. I mean, if you are born and raised in Haiti, um, you know, you might work your fingers to the bone and be a very virtuous person and a good father and married to the mother of your children and still just be utterly impoverished. And so the social context, the legal context in which we act makes all the difference. I mean, the late Steve Jobs, right, if he'd been born in Haiti, would have been different economically than he was being born in California. Now, you say that... Uh Part of the, you, you've got a whole series of virtues mm -hmm. that are necessary for avoiding yes. poverty. Why don't you list a few of those Absolutely. and then spell out one or two? Well, the virtues actually correspond to what I call the five features of the information economy, which is a disruption, exponential growth, uh, digitization, which is the movement from molecules to atoms, uh, hyperconnectivity, and an increase in the information part of the economy. And my argument is that there are actually virtues that correspond to those. And so those include cur what I call courage, uh, and darn, I don't have a list of them here, but anti-fragility, maybe you have them. The big one is creative freedom, but all of these correspond to those features of the information economy. All right, now let, let's, I want to zero in on one of these that yeah. we don't often think about as a virtue, right. which is anti-fragility. Absolutely. So what, what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, and why, why is that so important as, well, a, as a virtue? And of course, I get the term from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, his great book, Anti-Fragile. Uh, and he's, he's describing systems in general. I'm talking about anti-fragility as a virtue, but essentially you can think of a system or a person as having kind of three states. Something can be very fragile, which means it's easily broken, it's easily perturbed or disturbed. It can be robust or rigid, you know, like grant, a granite countertop. Or it could be anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is that property in which you improve with perturbation. So to be anti-fragile 
as a virtue means that when you experience failure, for instance, failure it do, is not just a strike against you. You actually learn something so that you improve from it. And his example, which I think is the best example, is biological systems. If you lift weights really hard, you'll tear muscle fibers, have an inflammatory response, then eat and rest. And your body builds it back stronger and bigger than mm -hmm. it was before. That's anti-fragility. And that's the virtue that we want. And I argue that's especially important because of this prior virtue of courage. Courage is just the willingness to act in the context of failure, which I think is really important because of the dis a disruptive age. That means you can't predict the future. And so either you're going to throw up your hands and not do anything, or you're going to act with the possibility of failure. Of course, failure by itself is not the path to success. You just keep failing. And so you need courage and then you need the ability to learn from failure. And so those are the kind of the two first things that I think people need to work and to succeed in a disruptive and exponentially growing uh, sector of the economy. Okay, now you make, you make the point that our educational system mm -hmm. is not is not well-tooled no. to produce anti-fragility. It's not. How so? Well, I mean, in the most obvious way, and you see this, of course, in a lot of secular and state schools, we're actually making kids fragile. I mean, we, rather than, you know, you take them to school and you expose them to things and you help them, I think the kind of goal of education ought to be a kind of inoculation in which you, you know, it's like if you inoculate someone, you're exposing them to a weak version of the virus so they build up um, an immunity to it. Well, that's what I would say as a Christian educator, that's what I want students to do. So I'm going to have to expose them to bad ideas, but you also have to equip them to be able to deal with it. And so part of that is learning how to deal with ideas that you disagree with. And yet now we're creating these safe spaces without, without being offended. Without being offended and to know how to actually deal with them and to say, well, People disagree with me. I think they're wrong for these reasons, and I can make arguments, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to be treated as if my human rights have been violated. Unfortunately, that's what is happening. So we have these highly fragile uh, college students that, you know, I mean, it's it's actually tragic because it, it's sort of they're in a protective environment where there's sort of hothouse flowers in the hothouse mm -hmm. in college. But I'm telling you, this makes a terrible employee to have someone that's just perpetually offended. This is not somebody that anybody wants to work with, you know, and so we're really not equipping them for life in the right. world. And you, and you, you maintain that, that they're going to get a rude awakening once they yeah. get to the real world. Absolutely, and a lot of them do, and I've, you know, I've encountered some. I mean, this is the dilemma because the reality is that when you get into the you know, world of business, which is where most of us end up, uh, you've got to learn how to serve other people. Either you're, you're working for your boss, but you also usually have a customer you have to serve, and that requires anticipating what they want, and um, lots of things, you know, if, if you all you've been thinking about is how you feel based on what other people are saying, you're not going to be very other-directed in your capacity to serve other people, which is what you have to do in business. Well, and you probably won't learn and grow. Absolutely. And, and yeah. take, take the kind of constructive feedback that you actually need. No, exactly. Because I mean, that's yeah. the most valuable thing often that professors can give you is that kind of constructive feedback where you're being told what you would, you don't really want to hear, but you need to hear. Uh, and if you know that, you say, well, I needed to hear that. Now, what do I do about it? You're more likely to improve. But if you're perpetually offended, you're in big trouble. Now, here's probably the most provocative thing mm -hmm. you say in the book. Yes is the advice to follow your passions is terrible advice. <laughs> That's right. Why, why is that? That's a, and it is the thing I've gotten the most pushback on. In fact, it, it, on an article online, I was somebody called me a heretic for saying this. And the reason is he thought I was saying, don't follow your calling. 
That's not what I said. Uh, in fact, I think that God does call us to do certain things. And part of preparing for life is to figure out, okay, what has God uniquely suited me mm-hmm. to do? And finding that and orienting yourself. The other thing you have to do is to adapt to the world, right? And so the reality is that our passions are fleeting things, at least as I'm using the word, right? And so I had passions. I wanted to be an oceanographer at one point as a kid. I wanted to be a rock musician, right? Thing, but it was something every week. I wanted week. to play in the NBA. NBA, no, exactly. And so it, <laughs> and people are passionate about all sorts of things. Most of those are not good career paths, at least initially, unless we spent time orienting ourselves so that we say, okay, first of all, what do people need? What would they want? What could I provide? What would I be good at? What has God fitted me for? Right? If, you, if you're doing that, you're sort of working your way down the funnel and you're narrowing the options. You're not just saying, much wiser. yeah, what, what excites me? I mean, we'd never tell a 12-year-old, well, just do whatever you think's fun. That's the last thing you'd tell them. Mm-hmm. And yet we tell 17 and 18-year-olds to follow their passion. Well, first of all, a lot of them don't even have a clear passion. And if they do, it's not likely probably to be something that's going to be a good long-term job prospect. Well, and some people actually are losing sleep over the fact that they don't. No, exactly. And I think that's the problem is because sometimes Sometimes, because of the fact that we don't quite know what the future holds, very often it's you have to just kind of feel your way around. And we'd all love to get, you know, sort of a, 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 a an email from heaven where God just kind of specifies for us, okay, just do this, do this, and then do this. I've often used to pray this way. God, just tell me exactly what to do. He rarely does that. And so my assumption is that he wants us to feel around a little bit. Well, because he doesn't want you shirking responsibility. (laughs) No, exactly. He wants you looking out and figuring these things out. And especially in a constantly changing world, expect that. Don't, you know, God sometimes, sometimes people say in the sixth grade, I want to be a violinist. And that's what they do. That's great. But don't assume that that's the norm. In fact, I think that's the exception. But but don't don't we often use things that you are most passionate about Hmm. As an indicator yes. of calling, yes, and absolutely. That, well, that's so how the trick. That that's the trick. And so, I think you need to put it in a theological context. And so, first of all, there are going to be lots of things that you're passionate about. But if you're thinking about, okay, what should I do for a career, right? So, I'm assuming a career is this is going to be the way that you make money, right? right. So, it's by definition going to be need to be something that somebody's willing to pay you to do, right? And so, there might be lots of things you love to do that are just hobbies and indulgences. That's fine, but you shouldn't expect that if you want to play World of Warcraft or whatever, somebody's going to pay you to do it, right? It's a, it's a hobby that you hopefully don't do very often. And so that's that, that sort of question in which you say, okay, well, God calls me to do something, but I have to do something in order to make a living in a world of scarcity that is beneficial to people. Then what you're doing is you're sort of, you're starting to align, okay, what, what is it, what are the things out there I'm going to need to provide with what would I be good at? What would I really like to do? What could I throw myself into? So the question, it's not when I say don't follow your passion or follow your passion is bad advice. I'm not saying don't look at what you're sort of called to or don't do ignore, don't ignore, don't ignore what that. your passion Yes, about. don't ignore that. But don't assume that whatever you happen to be passionate about today is necessarily by itself going to tell you what you ought to devote your life to. That's okay. And I think, I think, I th- I actually, I think that, that's actually very, very Helpful and it's nuanced. Yeah, just right because you know I, I wouldn't want to discourage people from following their dreams. No, not at all. But I do. I do think it is good advice. The question you raise about what is, does the world need? What you're passionate about? Yeah, yeah. And it may be that what you're passionate about is not something anybody's going to pay you for. No, that's right. And then maybe and that's, that's and that's okay. That's okay. And that could still be a hobby. That's the difference yeah. between a career and a hobby. 
You know, as one as you do just for mainly for your own entertainment, the other one you, you do at least in part because you're trying to serve the needs of others. Here's another thing. I mean, the, the, the book is full of these really provocative things that are, are so, they're just so interesting. They just, they just demand to be teased out yeah. a little bit more. You say that altruism is one of the most misunderstood facts about Absolutely. our market system. Yeah. Well, in altruism, if you look up the word, right, and the etymology is from the Latin word alter, which means other. And so to be altruistic, sort of in the narrow sense, is just to act for the benefit of others. And so when we hear altruism, most people think of Mother Teresa because they identify it just with self-sacrifice, in which you essentially forego to- something. Total self-sacrifice. Total self-sacrifice, right? Jesus on the cross, right? That is a type of altruism, but there's also a type of what we'll call commercial altruism, uh, in which you are also interested in fulfilling some need that you have, but in order to do it, you actually need to serve other people. And so almost every job that we do is actually like this, right? If you're a good barista or you're a good executive assistant, you may just be doing those jobs mainly because you need to pay the rent or get braces for your Mm -hmm. daughter, but you're not going to be any good unless you can constantly attend to the needs of others. Uh, And that's a type of altruism that I think we miss. And so in a market economy with the rule of law, that's sort of the best way, that's the most assured way of actually being able to you know, get someone to pay you to do something is to find, okay, what do they, what do they need and find a way to fulfill that? That's a type of altruism. And so I don't, the problem is we have this really silly kind of bifurcation in which you either have total self-sacrifice as altruism or it's all just greed and selfishness, right? That's a, re, that's a really unrealistic and I think just false yeah, way of false viewing the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I actually think we can take this a, a step further mm-hmm. in, in distinctly Christian terms, yeah. and say that you know the, the market system is one of the way, one of the chief ways in which we can love our neighbor. Absolutely. Now, would you also hold that that's true in a global economy, where you know I, I may never see my neighbor face, yes. I may never meet him or her, right? Uh, but simply by virtue of those commercial transactions, I am loving my neighbor? Or, I, or is that a stretch of the concept? I, I don't think it's a stretch of the concept, at least if you understand that, right? Now, I do think that, you know, this is Hayek's famous analysis, that the way in which you interact with people close to you is, is personal and different. You know what the effects of your actions are, right? Whereas I don't know exactly what the effects of my actions on a factory worker in Thailand are necessarily. But if you study the market system and the market process and you say, okay, no one has access to all the sort of information needed to produce something. The best way in which those actions can be coordinated in this world um, is a market system with price signals so that people don't have to know the whole system, but they can make decisions based at the local levels, and it ends up benefiting other people. And so I think, you know, honestly, it's the sort of thing that a lot of people don't even think is possible, and we wouldn't think it's possible except that the products of this this process are everywhere around us. Let's let's take, for example, that... uh, a number of our listeners decide while they're listening to this that they mm-hmm. want to order your book. Right. Uh, and so while they're listening to this, they're on their computer on Amazon. And right. And they hit, they hit that, you know, buy with one click. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and so how many people, you know, go, go into action... Oh, I know. When that order is placed. And who knows? It's millions. And if you were to if you were to trace all of the physical infrastructure and the technological infrastructure, it's tens of millions of people are involved. None of them know about this particular detail. Mm-hmm. All of whom most were presumably both trying to think, you know, provide something for people also meet their own needs. It makes sense that we would normally, as Adam Smith said, be concerned about the needs of our children and our nearest neighbors. 
And yet they provide something in, in this kind of distant way as a result, both of their own actions and this market process that's been set up. Yeah, but that, I, I still think that's a little bit counterintuitive it is. for most people to think that you could actually love someone that you don't ever meet Absolutely. or never see face to face. Yeah, and there is a kind of a, a sort of moral proximity question, right, in which um, you know most certainly the effects of your actions up close, right? I know exactly what my daughter needs. I know mm -hmm. what my daughter's allergies are and things like that, right? And so there's a type of social interaction that's appropriate to them. And so then the question is, what types of social interactions what are interactions scale at different sizes? Well, we can't love everyone, 7 billion people in the world, the way we love our children, obviously. It doesn't mean we can't act in certain ways and do things that actually help them and that are in some extended sense, I think, an act of love. Yeah, and right. I mean, we have, yeah, we have different obligations yeah. based on different relationships. Absolutely. So look, put on your uh, prophetic hat okay. for a minute. What, what do you think are some of the disruptions that are coming mm -hmm. in the next, say, 18 to 24 months? <laughs> That we, that we ought to be on the lookout for. 18 to 24 months is a little harder to say, but I do think... Uh, or whatever time period increase, at least I'll say five years. Okay. Increasingly autonomous cars and vehicles, I think, are, are just near the horizon. And in terms of jobs, that's going to be the most significant for long-haul trucking, primarily because long-haul trucking is actually an easier problem to solve than, say, in-city driving. Mm -hmm. It's you know straight-on interstates, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And for in many states, that's the number one job for men, is long-haul trucking, many of whom that's all they've ever done. And so I think there's a disruption there. I, and I'm not expecting that suddenly we're going to have trucks driving themselves. I just think that we're going to need fewer people to do a lot of the work mm -hmm. that was requiring one person per truck before. And so that's where I see uh, disruption coming, at least in the, in the near term. In the short term. Yeah. And then those factories that are still organized around that simple kind of assembly line model in which the, the, the workers on the factory floor are not doing skilled work, they're doing kind of really repetitive work, I think those are in danger. A lot of those have already disappeared, but there's I mean, some. Interesting to see how that affects the global Absolutely. economy. Absolutely. Especially you, because a lot of those factories are in other parts of the world now, yeah. not in the United States. Okay, one, one last question. Mm -hmm. G give our listeners a, a note of hope. Yeah. Amidst the disruptions that are coming. Absolutely. Um, my argument in the book, it's why it's called the human advantage, is that we're in what's now what we can call the information economy. Uh, we've moved from this industrial uh, economy into an economy in which the production of new meaningful information is the primary source of wealth. Here's the good news. Human beings have exclusive jurisdiction on the production of new and meaningful information. Mm -hmm. And so it, rather than thinking the information economy is going to increasingly alienate us, if we orient ourselves properly, we can actually, more of us, start doing those things that only humans can do. So that in some ways we're leaving and producing, creating machines to do some of the things that we could have done. And we're going to be moving more and more to those things that are uniquely human pursuits. And okay. I think that's a positive message. Right. And, as, and as a Christian... I mean, what 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 what, are, what gives you hope? We are creatures made in the image of the creative God, and God commanded the first man and woman be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And I think that's what we're supposed to be doing, and that's what we're doing. Okay, that's great stuff. This uh, well, uh, this this just begs for a follow up. <laughs> so we'll we'll do a follow up on sure. this at some point. Uh, but Jay, thank you so much for being with us. I want to re highly recommend the book, The Human Advantage. The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines, especially the, the discussion of the virtues mm -hmm. necessary for, for uh, not only surviving, mm -hmm. but prospering and flourishing 
in this age of disruption that's coming, but yet recognizing that there's a human advantage mm. ultimately because we're made in the image of our Creator God. Absolutely. So, Thanks, Scott. This has been great stuff. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for being with us. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Jay Richards, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and remember, think biblically about everything.